0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto and DeFi. I'm your host, Crypto Texan, and today we have with us Anthony Cisano, who is the founder of The Daily Guay, co-founder of EthHub, and advisor to Set Protocol, MStable, Polygon, block native, and I think those are the major ones. Uh, Anthony, thanks for being with us here today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Really excited to to get into this chat. I was actually just going through the uh, channel, the AMA channel, before I'm looking at all the questions. There's a lot of good questions in there, so excited to uh, to answer those.
0: All right, great. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, let's just start with your background, if you don't mind. Uh, Could you just explain uh, how did you get into crypto and DeFi, and what's kind of prompted you to start uh, eth hub and the daily way
1: yeah so I, i guess i first got into crypto back in 2013 with with bitcoin back then i had a small kind of stint with it. Uh, it's funny because Ethereum didn't exist back then so it was kind of just Bitcoin and you know Bitcoin derivatives like uh, or Bitcoin forks like Litecoin and a little bit of other things like Namecoin and Peercoin trying to do things differently but but mostly it was just Bitcoin back then um, so kind of hung around for a little bit there kind of rode the wave up, experienced things like uh, the Silk Road being shut down and, and kind of all the drama that, that that caused with Bitcoin and everything like that but then obviously the market came down after MT Gox collapsed and 2014 I kind of lost interest in the space. Uh, I was much younger. I was just in it for the money back then. So kind of sold off my what, I, what what I had left in Bitcoin missed the entire ethereum train until early 2017 when I had a friend who basically uh, remembered that I was into Bitcoin back in the day and he said you know uh, ethereum's like Bitcoin but you can like build stuff on it and I'm like okay because we were both uh, into technology um, so we, we both really liked the um, the idea of being able to build stuff uh, instead of just I guess like with Bitcoin just holding it or whatever Um So, yeah, I got into Ethereum in 2017, rode that wave up. I wasn't really public in 2017 at all. I I was a lurker. I lurked Reddit a lot. Uh, Twitter wasn't as big back then, but Reddit definitely was. uh, The ETH trader days, uh, for those who remember uh, those days. Uh, especially the daily threads that were quite fun to lurk but 2018 obviously the market came down again you know this time I decided hey why don't I stick around like I'm really passionate about Ethereum um, way more passionate way more intimate than I was when uh, when Bitcoin came around so let's stick around and see what happens so I launched a newsletter and website in early 20, 2018 called Block by Block which is basically just a collection of resources or crypto resources um, and a newsletter that basically updated people on the crypto ecosystem once a week and uh, then throughout 2018, I just kept growing my presence, got more active on Twitter, got more active in, in various Ethereum circles. And then by the end of 2018, I was launching ETH Hub with Eric Connor, uh, which is the, we, I, I, I um, changed the newsletter from Block by Block to the ETH Hub newsletter. We started doing a, a podcast and we also had the website, which is basically an educational resource for people. So it's kind of like an evolution of Block by Block for me, but just, um, you know, taking it to the next level. So uh, then it just continued all of that into 2019, Um um, joined Set mid 2019 to to lead marketing there, uh, and that was really awesome because uh, DeFi was like still so small in 2019. Um, so it was really awesome to, to leave my old corporate job uh, in mid 2019, because uh, I wasn't working in crypto up till this point, uh, and joined Set and kind of like uh, I guess like the six months following that. I basically, um, it was just like the best time of my life. I got to experience like working at a startup, working at a DeFi project, got to kind of travel to different ETH conferences for the first time. So it was really, really fun. Um, and then obviously uh, through 2020, we had the, the pandemic hit. So things were, were, were quite wild. We had the massive crash in March. And then we had the, the bull market. But I just kept doing the same of what I, what I was doing in 2020. And then mid-2020, I, I launched the Daily Quay newsletter. Late 2020, I launched the YouTube channel. And then uh, earlier this year, I... I left set full time, um, just uh, dropped down to an advisor role, uh, and you know ever since then I've just been doing my own thing. So yeah, I mean you already said like the companies that I'm involved with, and I do a bunch of angel investing as well on the side. So yeah, uh, that's that's kind of like uh, I guess a, a history of, of where I've been, kind of like uh, where I'm going.
0: Yeah, no, thank thanks for that background. That's that's very helpful. Uh, helpful to lay a foundation for the audience. Um, but yeah, like you said, the Daily Guay is a, is a daily newsletter, and then YouTube is, is a daily uh, vlog, I guess I would say. Uh, and that vlog is about 30 minutes every day, um, just detailing updates about what's going on in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, we just want to know, how do you keep up with all the news in the Ethereum ecosystem? And just how do you have enough content to do a daily YouTube show? It's just like, where, how can you,
1: how do you source all this information? mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I guess the content side's easy because there's just so much going on. Uh, but yeah keeping up with it is definitely a full-time job. It is not something that I could do you know just casually or, or part-time. I spend most of my time or pretty much all of my time in front of a computer. Where I'll just uh, sit on, like, I mean, Twitter's a pretty big source of information. So I'll sit on Twitter a lot. I'm quite active on there. Uh, but I'm subscribed to pretty much like every crypto newsletter out there. So, you know, if I miss something, I'm sure one of the newsletters will pick it up and I'll, I'll kind of like uh, get the insight from there. I mean, a bunch of different chats where people share different, you know, updates and stuff like that. And that's, I just kind of collect all that information together uh, for both the, the Daily Wave uh, YouTube videos each day and also for the ETHUB newsletter. So, yeah, I mean, it's really just like a time investment. At the end of the day, there's no quick, hacky way to do it. I mean, the quick, hacky way to do it is just to follow my content for other people. But (laughs) as someone producing the content, I kind of need to do the grunt work. Uh, But it's fun. Like, I enjoy it. I enjoy being able to kind of share my knowledge and and update everyone on the ecosystem, Uh, you know, especially because I know not everyone or most people don't you know, it can't dedicate like most of their day to just keeping up with Ethereum uh, for various reasons. And, you know, eventually I'm sure my life will change to a point where I couldn't do it um, either. But, you know, while I've got the time now, while I've got the, the passion, um, you know, I just keep doing it and it's fun and I, I really enjoy educating. So yeah, that's that's kind of how it goes.
0: Yeah, well I, I appreciate your content. I know that a lot of other index co op members appreciate it too. Not to mention, you know, the Into the Ether podcast, what you and Eric Connor do, which which I'm also a big fan of. Uh, but you also mentioned uh, Token Sets, which you're involved with, you said mid-2019 you got involved with them. Um, you're listed as the product marketing manager at Token Sets. What does that mean exactly? And, and also, what is your relationship with Token Sets and the Index Co-op and uh, DeFi Pulse Index?
1: Yeah, so uh, as I said, like mid-2019, I joined SET and I left in early 2021 um, as product marketing manager. So what that was is just basically uh, the person that was doing all the marketing. Uh, so I was putting together all the all the blog posts for launches. I was doing the tweets. I was managing the community in the Discord, uh, doing press releases, uh, newsletters, all that sort of thing. Um, so that's kind of like what the core of the role was. Uh, coming up with new ideas of like how to do – how to kind of like get attention onto SET how to do marketing around that and everything like that. So, that was the core of the role. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my involvement, I guess, now with uh, with SET is, as I said, like I'm an advisor to them. So, I help them wherever they need help. Like I have a pretty big network. So, having me on board as an advisor is pretty advantageous to SET. I'd also help like on the marketing side advising and, and just anything else that they need uh, kind of help with. Um, and my relationship to the Index Co-op is basically, I guess, uh, through SET, essentially. Um, you know, I do lurk the Discord. I know I'm not too active there, but just so much going on. I don't have time to be very active in, in every Discord. But I do kind of like follow very closely along with what the Index Co-op is doing. Um, you know, I still vote on proposals and things like that when I when I can uh, with my tokens and stuff like that. But, yeah, my relationship to Index Co-op is through SET. Uh, and with DeFi Pulse, I guess... With DeFi Pulse, it's the same kind of relationship that SET has where um, they're just basically a partner within uh, the network. They built the DeFi Pulse index on on kind of like a SET protocol and, and they're kind of managing it via index co-op. Uh, so that's kind of my relationship there. But also with, with DeFi Pulse, uh, I know I know the team very well there. I'm actually part of their researcher network now where I publish uh, posts from time to time um, on various topics too. So that's kind of like how it all works there.
0: Yeah, yeah. We Well, we appreciate your... Uh your advisory uh, role to the Index Co-op and and to Token Sets as well. Um, So speaking of Index Co-op and and DAOs, uh, you tweeted something today that you mentioned on the daily GUE today, but I wanted to see if you could elaborate on it uh, again here. And the tweet was, with DAOs, we're witnessing the creation of truly global, decentralized, and digital-first organizations that allow literally anyone to participate. What an incredible time to be alive. And I completely agree, uh, being part of this index co-op DAO. uh, Do you want to elaborate on that a a little bit more, if you could?
1: Yeah, so I guess yeah, yeah, for sure. The Index Co-op is like the fir- the perfect example of this for me, of uh, of a DAO that is a well old machine from from what I can see, uh, you know, looking in. Uh, obviously, I'm not part of the day-to-days, but definitely uh, Index Co-op is the DAO that I talk to most people about. It's the one that I use as a reference point for people asking me for advice on, you know, how to structure a DAO and, and various other things. So what I kind of, you know, I guess meant by my tweet is that, Uh, Like, I guess I want to hone in on the anyone can participate uh, kind of uh, part of that tweet because – You know, when you work for a company in like Meatspace, uh, you know, a a company that's registered in the traditional world, there's a bunch of different checks that you have to go through, whether that's kind of like a police check or you have to have a visa to work for a specific company, depending on where it is in the world, um, or you just flat out get denied a job because of who you are. Like, obviously, there's a lot of uh, that going on in the world. There's laws and regulations around that, and that's all well and good. But still, there's a lot of, um, you know, bias and prejudice. And, you know, there's a lot of um, nepotism going on, too, where people will get hired based on, on, you know them being family members and things like that. Uh, I think with, with DAOs, what it does is it basically creates, as I said, the first digitally native organization where it basically doesn't exist anywhere but on Ethereum. Ethereum is its governing body, and the, the only thing that Ethereum governs is the rules of the DAO, and basically does that via smart contracts and all that, all that good stuff there. Uh, so um, that allows literally anyone around from around the world to participate. It Doesn't matter who you are; no one even needs to know who you are. You can be completely anonymous. And as long as you're adding value to the DAO, whether that be via Completing bounties or becoming a core contributor or just hanging around the Discord channel—like literally, no one ever has to know who you are. You're judged purely based on merit, and I think that's just incredible because we haven't had that before. Uh, in no place in the world have we had that because typically, even if you're a digital organization, you're still registered somewhere. I used Binance as an example in the Refuel, where Binance likes to play regulatory arbitrage, where they say, "Oh, we're ho- we're wholly digital." Um, well, I mean, okay, you can maybe argue that, but I don't believe that. I feel like they have to be registered somewhere in the world um but also they're completely centralized they have a a, a centralized kind of process of hiring people of uh getting people to work uh work with them on you know through partner networks and stuff like that uh they're not a DAO uh or anything so yeah i I don't think that would i would consider that a digitally first kind of organization because they definitely have a presence in traditional finance. I mean, they touch the traditional finance system through uh, uh, payment on-ramps. They're regulated by that system. Uh, So there's all that kind of stuff going on. Whereas with DAOs, um, while they can have those things and they can have like those things as add-ons, they're purely digital. And they, as I said, they're only governed by the Ethereum network, uh, 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 the the core rules, but also the the DAO itself will obviously govern what happens within the DAO. Um, And if, you know, if if things start happening, like, uh, like all those things start creeping in from the traditional world, into these DAOs, for whatever reason, uh, it's actually really cheap to exit at the end of the day. People can exit, they can fork. You know, you can't really do that with traditional companies. It's much, much harder uh, to kind of like, uh, I mean, you can exit for sure, but it's much, much harder to kind of like fork the project or fork the company and kind of like bring a community with you. And it's much harder to, to kind of network effects that way too. I think Ethereum just makes it much easier to exit. So I guess that's kind of, I guess, hopefully gives an overview of what I meant by that tweet. And I just think it's really, really cool what we can do now with it, with it, with uh, these DAOs.
0: No, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, thanks for elaborating on that. And another thing that you touched on it on the daily Goy was, you know, the, uh, the fact, you know, comparing Binance to, or to DAOs today is that Binance has bank accounts and to open a bank account, you're going to need a physical and a mailing address to open up a bank account. And with DAOs, uh, we don't have a bank account. We have crypto. We have our native token that we use. And you know, I think some DAOs and protocols are diversifying their treasuries, which is what I want to talk about next. And I've heard you talk about this before a lot on the daily way. Uh, is DAOs and, and protocol treasury diversification uh, index? Uh, I think we have about close to eighty percent of our treasury is in our native. Currency or in our native token index, and we, we just got that capital raise. Uh, so na- now we have about ni- 18 to 19% at USDC as well. Uh, we also have some DPI and, and ETH Fly products, and so we're starting to diversify a little bit more. But I just wanted to get your take on DAO treasury diversification. W- why do you feel like that's important? Is it important? And, and do you see any DAOs that are doing a good job of that? Uh, and if so, Who are they and where are they getting right?
1: Yeah, so I think just from a risk management perspective, uh, you know, it's something that needs to be done by all DAOs. Like a DAO can't just hold 100% of their treasury in their native token because their native token is obviously volatile and the younger the DAO is or the younger the project is, the more volatile that token's going to be. So having kind of certainty over funding um, is is incredibly important. So, I mean, I was very happy to see that the Index Co-op uh, was able to raise, I think it was $7.7 million uh, by selling tokens uh, to a bunch of really, really aligned... Uh, kind of people within the ecosystem to help them along as well, but essentially now you have seven point seven million dollars that is um, stable that can be used to fund the project for for quite a while. So I was really happy to see that. So that's I guess um, you know the, the the main reason is just like making sure that you you kind of like de-risk wherever you can um, while also kind of having exposure to to the token. So I think you know there's there's plenty of DAOs doing this now. I mean there's been other ones that have done these kind of sales out outside of their their I think uh, UMA did one recently for $2.6 million. Uh, Badger Dow has done one in the past. Uh, There's been a bunch of others out there. I'm not going to list through every project, but I think uh, that's the smart play, making sure that you have kind of like a stable asset that – Allows you to kind of like guarantee funding for quite a while without having to worry about the the, the price of, uh, of of the token. And I mean that's the same as kind of like I guess an individual's portfolio uh, kind of construction. It's like you want to de-risk as uh, you know if you're 100 percent crypto and you're zero percent cash. Well, you want you know at some point you want to de-risk. You want to have a cash reserve uh, for various reasons. Um, and you know that cash reserve should be matching the the size that you need it to be. Like if you have uh, like with the with the cob for example, the cob needs to pay out. It needs to ensure that it can continue funding itself through, you know, any kind of crypto bear markets or anything like that. And it doesn't, and it also doesn't want to, like, sell all of its tokens to cover expenses because obviously as the price goes down, the more tokens you have to sell, um, you know, and, and, and the kind of less bang for your buck you get. So, I think that having that treasury diversification is incredibly important there uh, for that long-term funding. So, uh, that, that's what I see as, like, the, the main benefit. I guess the other benefit, as you mentioned, there wasn't just USDC in there. There's DPI. There's the fly products i think that's really cool because it basically gives the the dow exposure to their own products um and i think that works well to align incentives but i also think that uh that those should be weighted quite small they shouldn't be something that's uh that that's huge because like obviously the fly is 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 kind of like riskier than holding just uh plain eth or just uh, just holding um cash of course and same with the dpi so i think having those is fine but like i wouldn't want those to be like 50 of the treasury for example which i don't obviously it's not, but yeah. So, so from that perspective, uh, having like a you know almost twenty percent cash position, I think is really prudent uh, and 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 really uh, really uh, really good to see.
0: Yeah, and and on those DPI and fly uh, eat fly product, I think those two combined make up maybe one percent, maybe just less of one percent. So yeah, I I, I think w- we would also agree with you, Matthew Graham, our, our treasury whiz, uh, w- would agree with you there as well. Um, but also on on the subject of funding DAOs and funding tokens, um, you mentioned that you're an angel investor in, in some other product projects. Uh, are there any uh, advisory roles that you're most excited about or angel investments that you're most excited about or what's kind of catching your eye a little bit? And then what advice would you give a new token from a, a just an initial distribution strategy on, on who gets the initial allocation?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, as you mentioned earlier, I'm I'm, a, I'm an advisor to four different projects right now: uh, Polygon, Set, uh, M Stable, and Block Native. Uh, I think the one, maybe I will pick the one that doesn't really get much coverage, uh, and that's uh, Block Native. Like the other three, I think people are aware of, but uh, Block Native is is one that I'm super excited about. They're ba- they're basically sit in the background. They're a core infrastructure for a lot of teams and a lot of people. They basically call themselves the masters of the mempool. So uh, for those who don't know what the mempool is, it's basically the pool where all of our transactions go uh, when we do them on Ethereum before they're mined um, and put into a block. So obviously we have heard a lot of talk about MEV lately and how that kind of affects different things on ethereum um sorry essentially what what block native is, is doing is basically allowing people to get key insight into the mempool um into kind of the way ethereum functions under the hood and giving people the tools to kind of take advantage of that whether that's traders or teams or individuals or anything like that so yeah block, block native is definitely one that i'm really excited about that just doesn't get uh, anywhere near as much coverage as the other one so i figured I just kind of illuminate that for people. Um, But in terms of uh, angel investments, I mean, I've done over 20 at this point. So uh, it's kind of hard to pick one that I'm most excited about. But I think, you know, it's funny. The the one that I did that was, I think, my second one, which was Zappa. I'm really excited about Zappa and about them continuing their growth. I think they're doing a lot of really cool things. I was really excited when they introduced the gamification features, even though it's kind of something very basic where you just, you know, they'll uh, kind of like log in each day or you kind of do some quests each week to earn XP and you earn some NFTs, I think that it's just showing people that this this sort of stuff is really good for attention. I think it keeps people coming back. It keeps people kind of engaged with the platform, keeps people using the platform. Um, and it's like a... Alternative to liquidity mining, I think, where you don't have to pay out like this insane amount of uh, of tokens to to kind of get uh, any kind of users or liquidity in, you can basically uh, entice them with uh, NFTs or kind of like a, a gamification system. So I think that's really really exciting. Uh, and I mean, there's a, there's a few others here. Uh, some of them aren't public just yet that I'm that I'm pretty excited about. But yeah, I think Zappa out of my list here um, is, is one that I, I obviously use a lot and keep an eye on uh, a lot as well. Uh, and to your final. Kind of question about token distributions, I actually use the Index Co-op as the perfect example of the best token distribution I've seen within, uh, I guess, like the DeFi space. I, u- I use this all the time when talking to other teams. They ask me how to structure a token distribution. And I say the Index Co-op um, is the best I've seen so far. And that's, I think, that the, the core theme there is because Originally, the index co-op with their token distribution did not um, optimize for speculation in any way. I think that was part of when we had early discussions that set, that was part of, I guess, uh, one of the core discussions is that we want to make sure that we don't optimize for speculators because we know how that kind of ends. Uh, Because we've seen what happened with a lot of the other DeFi tokens that optimized for speculation where they had like a pool two, for example, an incentivized token pool, or they had like a really aggressive liquidity mining campaign. What ended up happening was that the tokens went into the hands of the wrong people and the, those wrong people were just the, the mercenary farmers who would dump the token and then all the people who actually wanted to hold the token were the ones getting dumped on so you know you had this kind of uh, really bad alignment of incentives where uh the incentive was to just crash the price down to you know whatever to get as much value out of it as you could from from farmers mm. uh whereas the people who actually wanted to hold the token and get exposure were were kind of like on the other end of that so and and uh, on top of the uh, that kind of uh, 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 note. I think that the way that the Index Co-op has distributed tokens is one of the best, if not the, be- the best that I've seen within the DeFi space because it distributed them to the right people via the contributor program and, and you know, allowing people to kind of like buy in without the speculation too, allowing people to get into the token without all the noise and all the kind of like um, extreme farming and dumping going on. Uh, I remember the, the token sat, you know, under $5 for, for for quite a while there. And a lot of early contributors were able to buy it at that price. Uh, and a lot of early contributors were also able to to earn it at that price, which I think was really, really cool. And you didn't have the, the mercenary farmers because the liquidity mining that the Index Co-op did for the DPI originally, it was very uh, conservative. It kept getting reviewed as as time went on and, and dropped as time went on. Same for the other products. So I think that, uh, you know, the In-Niscope really is the perfect example of a, of a token distribution that favored the contributors rather than favoring the uh, kind of mercenary farmers.
0: Yeah, I, and... Yeah, on the liquidity mining, yeah, we that is something that we review a lot. And if you've ever seen a post by overanalyzer in our governance forum, uh, you can see how much uh, time and energy he puts into making sure that we get that right. Um, he's mm-hmm. a huge asset to have in our DAO. Um, and uh, just one more question for now about index co-op that I think would be interesting to get your take on is, you know, we've got the DeFi Pulse Index. We have the Metaverse Index. We've got the two BTC ETH Fly products. Uh, what is something that you would like to see that we don't have yet uh, deployed from an an index or an ETP
1: perspective? Mm Mm-hmm. So... I mean, I guess, like, I actually was a fan of the, the BED index, which is going to be deployed um, soon. Um, you know, I, I know that's already kind of, like, in the pipeline, so mm-hmm. that was something that I wanted to see. Even though it's basic, I just think that it's something that uh, a lot of people would, would be a fan of because of the fact that they want equal exposure to these three major themes, BTC, ETH, and DeFi, uh, but there's no kind of, like, one token they can buy. Uh, maybe some centralized exchanges have it, but we wanted to obviously make that native to DeFi, so mm-hmm. that, that would be one, but then, I mean, I know that's boring, but I still think that's something that's that that counts for a lot uh and then there's i mean it it depends right because with the metaverse index there are already some kind of like i guess pseudo social tokens in there so you know a social token index would probably be the the other thing that i would kind of look at because those things are kind of heating up but i think the metaverse index kind of covers that as well so maybe you wouldn't need a separate one for that um, I am a pretty big fan of the of the fly products generally. Um, maybe more of those. Maybe you could have like a Dpi fly or something like that. I know it's kind of a bit harder because dpi is not on too many money markets yet or anything like that, but that would be really cool. Um but just generally, I guess um, my kind of view on index products is that, they should just be things that people uh, want to passively hold and they should appeal to people that are that are more passive holders rather than active ones. But also, you know, as we've shown with The Fly, I think what the Index Co-op can do is make uh, uh, a kind of like index products out of active investments. So obviously The Fly is usually an active investment uh, that people have to manage themselves, but with an index, they can kind of get passive exposure to that. So sitting in with that theme, I think, is, is, is really cool as well. Um, and there were kind of like early ideas um, from uh, a place called token terminal that i saw getting kind of proposed where doing indexes based on the price to earnings or price to sales ratios of different protocols and rebalancing it that way so kind of maybe an alternative to dpi in that respect as well with a different kind of rebalancing methodology which i thought was pretty cool i'm not sure on the status of that right now but yeah when i saw it i thought it was a pretty good way of doing it so yeah uh those, those are kind of like the main themes that i'm looking at so hopefully that answers answers your question there
0: Oh, yeah, no, it does definitely. I uh, appreciate your thoughts and insights uh, on that. So let's, um, let's just switch over to just Ethereum in general and look to the near term future. Uh, August 4th, we have a date uh, for EIP 1559. I, I feel like we've been, uh, it's very highly anticipated. And uh, I think I've seen a lot of people talk on Twitter um similar to how the the bitcoin havening uh meme where you know it wasn't priced in uh, when people thought that it was uh, do you think EIP 1559 is priced in currently and uh, another question is
1: how much eth are we going to burn with this mhm so it's always funny when thinking about stuff that's priced in and not priced in it's it's kind of very hard to tell i think when it comes to things like ethereum and bitcoin because you know, you can do like a price-to-sales, price-to-earnings uh, measurement on them, and you can get like a number, but it doesn't really make sense because it loses all the other kind of use cases that um, that ETH has, right? It, it, it only measures kind of like ETH's uh, fee revenue, essentially. It doesn't measure ETH's monetary properties or anything like that. <clears throat> so, from that point of view, it's, it's just very hard to know if something's priced in or not priced in. Uh, I would say that I think a lot of people still don't understand one five five nine how it works, how much ETH it's gonna uh, it's gonna burn, and what effect that's what net effect that's gonna have on the ecosystem over time. So I would wager that um, it's not priced in, uh, or at least not fully priced in. Maybe some of it is priced in. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's lots of people buying ETH because of one five five nine. I mean, that's a major reason why I, bought, I, I, I buy ETH, uh, of course, and that's part of my my thesis on ETH. But I would say that, um, you know, by saying something's priced in, you're assuming that everyone that would ever buy ETH and that everyone that, you know, has bought ETH knows about this and knows about the net effect of it. So from that point of view, I would say maybe not. Excuse me, sorry. Uh, And then, you know, in terms of how much ETH we're going to burn, well... That's variable depending on the fees that are being paid Uh, over the last seven days. I think the average fees being paid is still over five million, Uh, and you know, uh, based on kind of like um, expectations, we're going to burn most of that. It won't be all of that, but we would burn most of that. So, say we burn like three, three and a half million of that. That's that's kind of like how much ETH will be being burned a day if there was five million dollars of fee revenue. But it it depends on a a variety of factors, and we won't know exactly how much ETH is going to be burned until one five five nine is live and we see the behavior of different kind of users. And what they do with their transactions but it's going to be a, a substantial amount and obviously As I said, that's variable. So as the network heats up and and gets more activity, as the market heats up again uh, sometime in the future, we're going to have that uh, kind of um, mechanism in place to start burning more and more ETH as time goes on. And then I think as more people see that, as we kind of have people on Twitter screaming from the rooftops, hey, we just burned this much ETH today, uh, that's going to cause a narrative to form where people are like, wow, okay, I didn't realize this much ETH was going to be burned each day. Uh, This is really huge. And you're just going to see a lot more of that um, on Twitter. People are going to make memes about it. Uh, and I think it'll just finally uh, settle in for a lot of people, which will cause, uh, in my opinion, I mean, obviously not investment advice, but in my opinion, will cause ETH to trend up over time based on that. So, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of like how I'm thinking about 1559 at the
0: moment. Yeah, that, that makes sense, too. And so EIP 1559, you know, w- with the date uh, for August 4th deployment, uh, it's currently on the, the RinkB testnet. Uh, I think I'm not 100% familiar with the testnets uh, for Ethereum but uh, another question we have is, why are there four different test nets, and why do these EIPs have to go through this, these stages, and what's the purpose of these test nets in general?
1: Mm-hmm. So there's, it's currently deployed on three test nets, uh, so that was done over three weeks. Um, the fourth one will be deployed after main, the main net date, so we don't really care too much about that one. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it went live on three over the last three weeks. And the reason why we want it to, to be live on multiple test nets is to make sure that it goes smoothly every time. We want to essentially, you know, repeat the same kind of like launch of, of this upgrade uh, on three different kind of environments that, uh, you know, they're, they're still... The same kind of environment that would the mainnet that the mainnet is, but the thing is, is that each testnet has different usage levels. It has different um, yeah, people kind of like validating the network, whether it be as um, kind of like uh, not not miners like proof of authority or something like that. Different testnets have different kind of mechanisms there. Um, so we wanted to make sure that it, uh, I guess, like deployed correctly to all three of these testnets before we deployed to mainnet because it's it's a huge change as well. I mean, one five five nine is not just the fee burning; it changes the entire. Uh, gap mechanism on Ethereum and how it works. So we wanted to make sure that that was all well and good. And then with the test nets, we actually... We're able to stress test it as well in a in a kind of sem- in a live environment. Obviously, there's been uh, shorter lived test nets in the past of one five five nine. There's been simulations, but the public test nets are where are like a battleground. Essentially, they're not the ultimate battleground. That is obviously mainnet, but it is one battleground. It's kind of like a training ground for for people to come in. I mean, the, the researchers and developers also spam the test nets with transactions to make sure that the one five five nine mechanism worked correctly and that it was doing what it was supposed to be doing. Um, and it was. I mean, everything's gone very smooth smoothly, all the test nets are forked uh, correctly to the London upgrade, which is the one that 1559 is part of. And now the next step, as you said, on August 4th is the main net launch. And that will be the true test of 1559. That'll show us, you know, does the mechanism do what we truly think it does in um, smoothing out gas fees and also, obviously, burning ETH? Does it help with a bunch of other things, like uh, giving um, smart contract developers an on-chain gas oracle? Uh, Does it work to disincentivize people from blowing out the the transaction fees by uh, exponentially increasing them as time goes on? There's a bunch of different mechanisms in there, and we'll only really know kind of the, the net effect once it's live on Mainnet, and we can lo- and we can kind of like have that true test in the in the massive public battleground that is Ethereum.
0: Yeah, and I, yeah, it's interesting because I I feel like for a while there was this misconception that EIP one five five nine would reduce gas fees, uh, which is not necessarily the case. As you pointed out, it just I, I think you would say that it makes the gas fees more predictable.
1: Yeah, yeah, it it smoothens out the fees because you basically have uh, most people paying the same base fee so you don't have people overpaying. Like now when you kind of do a transaction and then for some reason, you know, the gas fees spike, you you might have to like speed up your transaction. There's a little speed up button in MetaMask and that allows for that. Whereas with 1559 style transactions, the base fee um, that you pay, which is the same base fee that everyone else pays uh, basically guarantees that you get into the block next block 95% of the time. And then if you want like 100% guarantee, you pay something called the tip on top of the base fee. And the tip is basically the same, uh, uses the same auction mechanism that we have today on Ethereum. So yeah, that, there's those kind of two aspects to it. And I think by smoothing out the fees on net, we should see kind of like lower fees for end users, but I don't, consider it to be a substantial thing. And it's also gonna be um, kind of like fun to see how this plays out with something like Flashbots, because what Flashbots has done is it's taken a lot of the MEV activity off the uh, the public chain and and it's kind of like routed around it. But with one five five nine, the Flashbots transactions still have to pay the base fee. So right now they don't have to pay any way. they just um, get inserted directly into a block by a miner. But with one five five nine, they still have to pay the base fee. So that's going to be very interesting to see what happens with the base fee um, because of uh, uh, Flashbots and things like that. Okay.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Um... Okay. And another subject that we wanted to touch on were two pretty big announcements from two uh, very prominent DeFi protocols that have come out lately, and that's Compound and Aave have announced uh, Compound Treasury, and Aave has announced uh, Aave Pro, uh, kind of a, if you build it, they will come type mentality. I I think there's institutions on the sidelines that have been waiting to get in, and and this this could be the opportunity. And uh, one of the index co-op Uh, members, contributors mentioned that, you know, Aave Pro is kind of making DeFi compliant for institutions while Compound Treasury is uh, taking the compliance risk. Um, And there's this is, It's kind of been a little bit controversial given the KYC and AML requirements and, and that is kind of frowned upon in, in the DeFi uh, space, I guess from a philosophical standpoint for some people. Uh, do you feel like this criticism is warranted and, and what are your takes on these uh, two new projects that they're taking on?
1: So I, I, I understand the criticism totally, um, but what I will say uh, to kind of like hit back on that a little bit is that we've built a system that uh, is literally for everyone, right? DeFi is for everyone. It is uh, for institutions, it is for individuals, it is for corporations, it is for whoever. And those people can use it, whoever they like. Now, you know, some people might argue back and say, well, okay, that's true. But Aave and Compound building tools specifically for institutions is not for everyone, right? It's got KYC, it's got AML, you have to uh, be an institution to access it. And that's all fine, well and good. But, but I think that the way you kind of look at it is that anyone can build that. I mean, if you wanted to, you could build uh, an entire kind of like bank on top of uh, something like Maker, and then you would just underwrite the loans and take on all the risk yourself. And you basically offer it to institutional clients or people who don't want to I- interact with DeFi. And we're already seeing plenty of centralized uh, exchanges interacting with DeFi to offer yield to their customers. So, for example, BlockFi and Celsius, they have a, a lower yield that you can get, but it's insured and there's these other stuff going on there i mean i don't trust it personally but you know people do uh and then they just use defi to generate those yields or they'll do some other kind of um risky things uh to, to, to generate the yield and they'll pass on a, a portion of that to to the users and they'll keep uh, some of it for themselves of course um so there's already been a lot of that stuff going on but i think uh, specifically you know the defi darlings Aave and compound going after this market themselves and basically locking you know most users out of this market because um, a lot of users don't want to do KYC and AML, which is fine. But also, a lot, a, a, you're not an institution, so you can't access it anyway. So I, I totally get the critiques there. But I think that the institutionalization of DeFi is inevitable. As much as we all have the dream that we want everyone to go bankless, we want everyone to have um, management over their finances and everything like that, that's a noble dream. But most people don't want to do that. And I, I think that's totally fine. I think. The the way I look at DeFi is that we're we're basically just rebuilding the rails of finance to be like a thousand times better than traditional finance. It's more transparent. It's more open so that you have the choice. Right now you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice to be able to do um, finance on your own. In the traditional finance system, you have to go through centralized intermediaries. I mean, even if you have cash, there's not much you can do with cash anymore. You can't do online shopping with cash. Like a cash on delivery thing is really not something that most merchants will accept. So from that point of view, you have to go through something like PayPal or you have to go through your credit card company or a bank or whatever. Whereas with Ethereum, you can either go through a centralized intermediary to do whatever you want. You can go through a centralized front end or, you know, someone that custodies your funds and and does the yield farming for you, like a block or whatever. Or you can do it yourself and you can set up your own kind of wallet. You can have your own funds and you have complete control over it. Um, they're still using the same rails. It's just that you now have a choice. So that's kind of like what I view DeFi as. I don't I don't view DeFi as this thing that's going to automatically make everyone in the world want to personally manage their own finances. Because re- realistically, most people don't actually care about their finances and, enough to manage them themselves. Yes, they care about earning a yield. Yes, they care about investing. But they don't want to do uh, what a lot of us very, very, um, you know, native DeFi people do. And that's kind of like uh, play with all the new protocols, do it all on our own, manage our own funds. Funds, make sure that we secure our own funds. That's just a daunting kind of like task for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people don't want to have responsibility over their own funds because they are scared they're going to lose them. They want insurance. They want uh, they want kind of certainty that they, if they make a mistake, uh, everything's going to be okay. Or you know they, they want kind of like an ability not to make mistakes. And that's fine. But uh, you know, and and the amazing thing about DeFi is that it basically allows us to uh, onboard even more people into this kind of like uh, self, uh, I guess, like managing finance uh, arena where, you know, they they wouldn't have been able to do that before. So on on net, I think over time, we're going to see much more people manage their own finances than has traditionally been possible. Uh, But there will still be a a large amount of people, and especially institutions, that will want someone to do it for them, that will want to use fully regulated products. They don't want to have they don't want to play in uh, like the wild west that is DeFi. And I think that's totally fine. And on that note as well, institutions in particular have to do KYC and AML. They're not allowed to interact with these products without them being regulated. They can't just use vanilla DeFi because they have a compliance that they have to um, uh, adhere to. They have fiduciary responsibilities. They have um, tons of laws and regulations that they have to follow. I mean, the, the financial sector is the most regulated sector in the world. Um, I, th- I think or at least one of, um, I think maybe the medical sector might be even more heavily regulated. But it is definitely regulated to a point where you, as an institution, you can't do anything without adhering to compliance. You have to monitor everything that you do. Whereas with um, an individual using DeFi, the only thing that we have to monitor is our taxes at the end of the day. Uh, we, ha- we just have to account for that. And we don't have to mon- have like any sort of compliance. We're not managing other people's money. Um, and-, and that really is the crux of it. When you're when you're managing other people's money, there is just like all of these regulations that come into it. And if you break any of those, um, the full you know power of the law is going to come after you and you're not going to have a fun time. So that's that's kind of like how I view that whole um, area. I think if you just look at it from a surface level and think that oh, institutions are capturing DeFi, you know, the dream is dead. I don't think that's the right way to go about it.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would completely agree with you. And, I, you know, we had Stani from Aave on last week, and I think he, he said something that's very interesting that he's going to pay attention to is, you know, it, what the arbitrage opportunities look like between the, uh, you know, compliant DeFi, you know, Aave Pro and, and compound treasury protocols and, and the, I guess – Less regulated, unregulated market in DeFi. Uh, what those in- difference in interest rates are, are going to be on those products, but I, I think I'm kind of thinking that I, a lot of these institutions are a little less risk, uh, would like less risk just inherently, and so I, I would think that they would wait uh, even until maybe ETH 2.0 uh, rolls out, which which is kind of what I want to get into uh, next. Uh, ETH 2.0, I feel like this has been a topic of discussion for a, a very long time and it looks like it's finally going to happen um, two main questions uh, on ETH 2.0 is what's your target date for the merge uh, when do you think it's going to happen and what could go wrong and is there anything that sticks out about the ETH 2.0 uh, proof of stake merge that you, know, you kind of say it, it, this is the thing in the merge that scares me if, if anything
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so with a, with a date, I don't think um, there's any kind of like hard date that anyone could give or even a soft date. There's like a launch window of Q1 2022, is which is like a target window for for um, the developers and the researchers to get it out there. Uh, the thing is we know that it can be done. We've done it on test nets. It works. It's just that, just that because the merge is such a critical thing and because things can go wrong with it and, and, and critically so, we need to make sure that it works. Uh, and We need to make sure we've done all the uh, – sorry, not works. We need to make sure we've covered all our base and we've done all the research and development into that. Uh, I think the research is mostly done. It's just the, the developing the engineering side of things that needs to needs to get done. So yeah, I would say a launch window of Q1 2022, but that's like a soft window. I wouldn't kind of assign any kind of probability to that. I I, at this point in time, with anything got to do with uh, Ethereum, but or just like software development in general, with, especially within crypto, I always assume that there's going to be uh, delays, there's going to be kind of um, dates pushed back, there's going to be something that needed to happen before we kind of put the, put uh, this into uh, put this thing live. And I think that's fine because at the end of the day, the merge in particular is a mission critical, absolutely huge thing that needs to go right the first time. Because if it goes wrong the first time we do it, yes, we can recover from it, but the recovery would be extremely ugly. It would be like cleaning up after a plane crash, essentially, If to use an analogy. Um, you know, you can build another plane uh, and everything, but uh, it's it's very ugly, because well, what would need to happen is essentially, if the merge goes wrong, wrong for whatever reason, you would need to somehow get the miners to essentially start, uh, uh, Mine the chain again, um, so mine the ETH1 chain again. You would need to um, roll back things You would need to make sure that exchanges and everything uh, are pointing to ETH1 instead of the Merge chain And all the wallets and everything like there's just so much that would need to happen It would be an absolute mess. So getting this right the first time is is critical and and it, it needs to happen. I wouldn't say it would kill Ethereum if it went wrong, but it would be very very bad if it, if it went wrong So um, yeah, we definitely need to get it right the first time and that's why it's gonna take a little while uh, and on that note, to answer your second question, the only thing that I guess would concern me, not to a point where I'm actually like, oh, my God, the world's going to end, Ethereum's going to die or whatever like that. But the, the thing that has me uh, a little bit concerned and, and some, some other people as well that I know is, you know, how do we keep miners incentivized right up until the merge to not kind of start messing with the chain? Now, mm. I'm sure, you know, a lot of you have seen. On Twitter lately, people are talking about reorging the chain with MEV incentives and things like that. And I've explained on my YouTube channel, I, I went over this on Friday's episode, um, where I think that this isn't going to happen because miners have um, various different incentives to, to keep themselves in check. But one of those incentives is, the, is kind of like an alignment around um, ETH value and mining ETH and, and making sure that they, they, they don't kind of like, uh, I guess, use another analogy, shit where they eat sort of thing. But as we get closer to the merge, where miners essentially get kicked off immediately as soon as the merge happens 100% of the miners are kicked off and they can't mine ethereum anymore well what happens then what are the what's the incentive for miners to not do that to not kind of mess with the chain up until uh, like as we get closer to the merge what's the incentive for them to stay and to make sure that we have a smooth merge now in saying that i actually think there's a bunch there's a there's a large part of the mining community that will be uh, that will stay and that will actually go th- um you know stay with us until the merge and then they're already staking so they're just going to um you know, start staking. They'll just turn their miners off, or they'll point their miners at another uh, another network that they can mine. But I think generally, when you kind of look at that, uh, there is a risk there. There is definitely a small risk uh, that people are looking at, and they're kind of like thinking of ways where we can mit- mitigate this risk. But there's no denying that it exists, and that is something that we're going to have to face as we get closer to the merge. I, as I said, I don't think it's like a, a critical thing or whatever, but I do think that it's something that uh, could maybe. I, I don't know do, do you have some adverse effect on the merge as we get closer Maybe you know so many miners drop off that uh, the difficulty doesn't adjust in time and then we have uh, kind of like um, uh, kind of like longer blocks or whatever and the network kind of I guess uh, gets uh, slows to a crawl or whatever. I'm not specifically sure on, on like what, how that would look, but I think that um, you know there is definitely a small risk there.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a risk that I haven't really thought about uh, that much. But yeah, I, I agree. It's it's prudent to kind of identify these potential risks and then and find some mitigating solutions or just some mitigating factors to, to get around it. So that, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so uh, another question that we had here is outside of Ethereum, uh, are there any other Layer 1s that even just kind of remotely catch your eye a little bit? And you can... Uh, have this answer be as as quick or as long as you want it to be.
1: Yeah, I get this. I get asked this a lot, um, yeah. and you know, I've tried really, really hard to look into other ecosystems and to find something that I feel is interesting, or that I feel um, they're doing something that's not already done on Ethereum, or they're doing it in such a way that actually you know makes a lot of sense, or, or changes the game, so to speak, and does something new and different. Because typically, a lot of these other chains, what they'll do is they'll literally just say that they're more scalable than Ethereum, um, and they achieve that by centralizing, by you know, making it much harder for and and users to run their own node, and 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 much harder for the network to to kind of like be decentralized. So, uh, a lot, pretty much most of them uh, are out. And when when I kind of look at it from that lens, I would say that um, recently I've taken a bit more of a, a kind of like interest in the Cosmos ecosystem. I think they're actually doing um, innovative things there. Uh, they have this like uh, a, a dex called the Osmosis Zone or something like that. I think that's what it's called. Um, that a lot of people are getting excited about because it's uh, they've got a mechanism which allows it to. Um, uh, so that it can't be a uh, front run or anything like that. So the MEV is impossible. Uh, I'll have to look deeper into that, but that's something that's definitely piqued my interest. But yeah, most of the other chains, I just don't think that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're long-term kind of things. I don't think they're going to kind of like even come close to to uh, scratching Ethereum or, or kind of making any kind of dent there. And to make, maybe have like a bit of a more controversial opinion here, I actually think a lot of these chains, they only get kind of like uh, attention from people because of uh, people think that they missed out on Ethereum and they're looking to make, you know, money on this new chain or whatever because they think that, oh, well, I can buy this cheaper and, you know, th- this will hopefully go up because it's a, a new blockchain and they're going to kill Ethereum and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I think that plays a big part in it. And obviously, I'm biased because I hold a lot of Ethereum and I've been with, with Ethereum for quite a while. Um, but that, I think that plays a big factor in, especially newer people's ways of looking at things, because I did that same thing in 2017. I mean, I wasn't super early to ETH. Uh, I, I bought like, um, you know, super early, early being like $1 or like ICO or whatever. I I, I bought some at $10 originally, which, um, you know, I, I only bought a little bit of $10. I didn't have much money back then. And then I bought like a lot, uh, most of my ETH, I think between $50 and $100, uh, which obviously is, is a lot less than what the price. Is now. Um, But during 2017, uh, you know, I I, kind of looked at other chains and I got like, I bought into some of those and I thought to myself, oh, well, I can make more money here. I can make more ETH um, from these because they're smaller. And I even bought into some of them and said, oh, "Okay, maybe this can like be as big as Ethereum, sort of thing." And obviously, I, I was wrong, and I learned from that. But I think a lot of the newer people that get involved in this ecosystem, they just don't see a lot of the the, the nuance and, and kind of like the history of these chains and and why they don't they, they can't compete with Ethereum or why they uh, Ethereum has such a lead. Um, and you know, I guess one of the things I do through all my work is try to educate people on that and sort of <clears throat> sort of I remind them that. It's fine to kind of uh, be a fan of other chains and follow them along, but, you know, a lot of them are, are not going to be a long-term thing. A lot of them are going to fail for one reason or another, even if the intentions of the team is amazing, even if the community is, is big. I think that it depends on what your community is. And as I was saying earlier, uh, the Index Co-op, I think, has an amazing community because of the fact that it, optimi- it didn't optimize for speculation, but a lot of these other chains, they optimize optimized for speculation because the price will go up during like a bull run. They'll get all of these new retail investors coming in and, and kind Kind of like playing in it and then once the the market cools down these retail investors disappear and these chains that people thought that had a lot of usage or a lot of um, people kind of uh following it actually was just people following the bull market so uh that's that's kind of like i guess my view there i mean i could go on forever about other other blockchains and things like that but you know, I try my best to to have like an unbiased view on things, but it, it's so hard for me to look at most of the other chains and, and kind of see what they're doing, see that they're doing anything differently. Because as I said, most of them are just taking trade offs to achieve scalability, and that trade off is usually centralizing. Which, I mean, I, I personally don't see the point of a centralized blockchain. I think that if we can get, uh, if we can build Ethereum into this decentralized settlement layer and and an extremely robust and secure settlement layer, and then on top of it through layer two build a scalable ecosystem, then I think that is the much better way to do things rather than giving up on decentralization to achieve scalability just so we can uh, kind of like, I guess, have a, a short term, I guess, uh, pump in price or a short term kind of like uh, uh, ecosystem built out. I think optimizing for the long term uh, is what Ethereum has always done. And that's kind of why I spend all my time in Ethereum. Uh, and as I said, like Cosmos is catching my eye a little bit, but I can't think of anything else that really I'm, I'm kind of like looking at right now in the layer one space.
0: Yeah. I, I remember in 2017, I, I had, uh, some pretty heavy Cardano bags, which full disclosure, <laughs> I, do, I do not have anymore. Uh, even it, it, you know, but we can, you know, that's, that's an aside. And I, I also, I, I thought you might try to take the easy way out here and maybe say, you know, since you're an advisor, you could say, Polygon, because it, I feel like Polygon kind of feels like a layer one that's just a, on top of Ethereum, and I and it's I think it's also interesting that you said Cosmos because I feel like there's some some similarities between the two, and I and I and I think that Polygon's white paper actually compares itself to Polkadot and Cosmos. Um, I could be wrong there, uh, but the, going talking about Polygon, you being an advisor. Another thing that's on Twitter that we've seen a lot of people talk about is the potential fragmented liquidity on layer twos. And do you see that as being a big issue if people are just choosing their, or protocols really, just choosing their favorite layer twos like like Arbitrum or Optimism or Polygon? Do you see, yeah, I guess the question is, do you see any issues with a fragmented ecosystem?
1: I'll answer that after I just clarify quickly that, yes, Polygon, for all intensive purposes, the, the POS chain, uh, uh, sorry, all intents and purposes, is considered a layer one for sure mm-hmm. but I think it's like a little bit more of a hybrid because of the fact that it actually relies on Ethereum for its uh, security, not for its security, for its um, a proof of stake mechanism where the smart contracts live on Ethereum so if Ethereum was to, to go down or whatever Polygon would also go down whereas these other layer ones don't have that So and, and also Polygon does checkpointing to Ethereum um, and, and things like that so I think it's, it's a little bit different but yeah, if, I, I do think that if we were to, to kind of like speak about that it would be that, that the Polygon kind of like is a layer one and that's another ecosystem obviously that I'm heavily involved with. But for me, what I'm most excited about with Polygon is uh, is the layer twos that they're building. So to bridge into your your, your question about like fragments, liquidity right. and things like that. I think that because because liquidity can move so quickly across different protocols, different chains and we're going to have bridging solutions like Hop Protocol, Connect uh, Seller Network, a bunch of others out there I really don't think this is going to be a, uh, an issue long term. I think that liquidity Is going to settle on a handful of different um, layer twos and maybe different kind of like side chains, whatever you want to call them. There's going to be a power law effect to it. But I I really don't think it's going to be a long term issue because we're going to be able to bridge liquidity between chains very easily. And, you know, I use chains as as a term for layer twos as well, because effectively layer twos and, uh, and new chains, they just inherit the security from Ethereum. Um, so from, from that kind of perspective, I, I definitely do think that uh, it's not going to be an issue uh, going forward. I, I do think that right now there's obviously some fragmentation. Uh, there's obviously um, liquidity on, um, on, on like polygons, POS chain, there's liquidity on Ethereum, there's liquidity on different layer twos. But that's just because we're still very early and still, very, very early, early days, and we still have to wait for those ecosystems to build out. But you know, I, I, I noticed that Hot Protocol actually went live today. Connects um, is already live. Sala Networks already live. So the solutions are there. It's just going to take uh, time to build out the liquidity on the bridging solutions as well, and it's just going to take uh, time for for the more of the layer twos to go live, like and optimism and for more liquidity to exist there. So, yeah, I guess like the the TLDR is that I, I just don't see it being a huge issue going forward.
0: Yeah. And that's I, I feel like I've, I've seen this a lot in, in Twitter and just the, the people we've interviewed so far. It's that, you know, they, they call Polygon, uh, some say a side chain, some say a, another layer one. Some say it's just definitely layer two. And so I think, you know, it, it's so unique in all the aspects that it has that it's, it's hard for people to pin down an exact uh, – clarification on, on what it actually is um, but mm-hmm. would what you what you said was was helpful so we're running up on on time a little bit here and, and we'll, we'll try to get to a few of these other questions real quick. Uh, one of them is it, it's it's pretty cold in Australia right now I think it's winter and you shaved your beard why did you shave your beard?
1: <laughs> so uh, it's funny because uh, yeah, it, it is definitely cold here. It's, it's winter. Um, it doesn't get too cold. Doesn't it? It doesn't doesn't snow where I am in Melbourne. So uh, it's not like a freezing uh, freezing temperatures or anything like that. Um, but it, it's funny. Like uh, I, I kind of was look, uh, looking at myself in the mirror. Maybe this is too much too much detail, but I was looking at myself in the mirror and I was like, you know what, I'm going to try a new look. Um, I had this beard for quite a while. Let's let's see what it look like with a, with a mustache. And, you know, I, I looked at it and I'm like, you know what, it doesn't look too bad. Let's see what the what the community thinks of it. Uh, so I went on and everyone started kind of like complimenting it and saying that it looks good and everything. So it kind of like stuck, but I definitely do do miss my beard right now. So maybe I'm going to grow it back. I don't know. But uh it was a bad decision in winter because, yes, I do feel the cold now a lot more on my face. It was weird when I <laughs> kind of like stepped outside with it and thought, well, I haven't Felt like window my f- face in quite a while
0: oh <laughs> uh, yeah that's uh, that's funny yeah i thought that was a funny question they got thrown in there um uh one more question and then and then i'll, I'll let you go so we, we talked about eip 1559 are there any do you feel like underappreciated e, unappreciated eips or, or changes that you want to see in in shanghai or any future forks
1: yeah, so some of you, some people may have heard of EIP three zero seven four, which is uh, a new EIP to basically make the user experience much better. Uh, to give a tangible example of how this would work, it, it's it's kind of technical. It's it's built for smart contract developers, but. To give an example of how this would work is that it essentially would remove the requirement to do uh, both an approved transaction and a a swap transaction in two different transactions. So, you know, when you go to Uniswap and you have to approve a token for trading and and then, you know, you have to wait for that transaction to go through before you can do a trade. Well, what 3074 would allow for is it would allow for smart contracts to be built that could batch these transactions so that you would only have to do one transaction to do an approve and swap. So, you don't have to split them up. You save on gas, and you also uh, save time and 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 energy doing that. So I think you know it's underappreciated how big of a, a user experience boost that would be, and how much it would um uh, it would basically smoothen out the entire experience for users, uh, and it would also make smart contract developers' lives a lot easier. I believe so. That's that's one thing that I think is being more talked about a lot more lately, but it's definitely underappreciated.
0: Yeah, that seems like a no-brainer. That seems like a way to make just things a. A little bit more efficient, especially on dexes. Um, okay, yeah. well, and that—that's pretty much all we have. So, uh, where can people go to find out more about you and the Daily Gwei
1: and Ethub? Just uh, my Twitter, Sasso Zero X, S A S S A L Zero X. It's got links to everything that I do on there. Um, you know, all the newsletters that I do and the YouTube stuff that I do. So, yeah, you can just go check that out for for, for everything.
0: Well, Anthony, uh, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat with us here at the Index Co-op. And uh, we'll we'll see you next time. Again, thanks for coming.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been really fun.
0: All right, everyone. Thanks for everyone in the audience who's listening. Uh, this is being recorded, and so we'll get a recording out uh, in the next uh, week or so. Uh, appreciate all of y'all coming out, and have a great uh, start to your week. Thanks.